I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles for our Old Testament Scripture reading this morning to Genesis chapter 15. You might notice that we're not in 2 Corinthians this morning. Um, our director of public worship encourages us on a regular basis to preach often on the nature of the sacraments, that we might be reminded the significance of these great ordinances which Christ has given and just as we hear about the Lord's Supper every week, so we thought it was fitting this morning with the baptism of Jane uh, to consider the nature of this sign and seal of the covenant. So Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. It's a passage that Paul himself will quote in our New Testament lesson this morning. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying this, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham continued, saying, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, saying that this man uh, shall not be your heir, this Eleazar of Damascus, rather your very own son shall be your heir. And so the Lord brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. If you'll jump forward to chapter 17 of chapter Genesis, this is 13 years later. Important thing to remember. Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 to 14. When Abram was 99 years old, again, this is roughly 13 years after the promise of Genesis 15, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and the Lord said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. I'll make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of all your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house, or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. 
Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. Now, if you'll turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 4. I told uh, Zach and Samantha several weeks ago, I said, pick, pick the sermon text. It's a great day for you guys. Pick the text and I'll preach it. They said, how about Romans 4? I said, well, what, what part? They said, the whole chapter. I said, oh. Maybe do like two verses. We'll give our attention to reading the first 12 and really try to hone in on verse 11 this morning. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Citing Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was he counted righteous before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. His purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is God's word. Deep waters. Let's go before him in prayer and ask for the Spirit's illumination. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for the clarity that your word, prov- uh, your, your word provides, and yet confess, unless your Spirit works in our hearts, we would not be able to see clearly those things found so clearly in your word. Illuminate our minds to understand the things so that we might be faithful to believe all of your promises and faithful to do all that you have commanded us to do in terms of our obligations. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, several years ago when I graduated seminary, one of my best friends, Grant Sweeting, uh, gave me a graduation gift. This little box, I opened up the box, and I actually didn't really know what it was. It was a, a funky little contraption. It looked something like a stapler. It was something known as an embosser. I actually didn't know what an embosser was, uh, but, but Grant did, and he thought it was the perfect gift for me. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with what an embosser is. Uh, it looks something like a stapler, but instead of uh, sliding pages between uh, the two ends and pressing down instead of it, stapling multiple papers together, it imprints a seal on a single page. Uh, this embosser had been specially made for me, for me to use and put uh, on all of my books. So that when I press down on this embosser, there's an imprint that's left on the title page, an imprint that says, property 
of Charles Williams. The imprint and the seal is there. It lets everyone know whose book this belongs to. What we find in the Old Testament is that circumcision functioned in much the same manner. The removal of the foreskin left a mark, an impression, and yet it signified that this person had been claimed by the Lord Himself. I think this has tremendous bearing on how we think about the meaning and significance of even baptism today as circumcision provides the conceptual background through which the lens and grid by which we are to understand what it is that baptism signifies as we'll consider in our passage this morning. I'd like us to consider three things. First, we'll consider the matter of justification. In other words, how is it that man is made right with God? We'll see this by doing a cursory overview of the first eight verses here in Romans 4. Probably spent about 12 or 13 minutes doing that. But then, in light of considering the nature of our justification, we have to ask, what then is the purpose? What then was the purpose of circumcision under the Old Covenant? And after considering that, we'll consider our third point, what is the significance of baptism today under the New? So three things, justification, circumcision, and baptism. For those of you who are familiar with Paul's letter to the church of Rome for three chapters, Paul has been making one consistent argument. The fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, be it Jew or Gentile, it does not matter. There is not a man born from Adam's race save one who is not guilty from birth, who therefore we find Paul's grand conclusion that all merit the everlasting wrath of a holy God. The wrath of God is being revealed against the unrighteousness of men, Paul writes. And he goes to great lengths to prove this, both from nature and from Scripture, from uh, just looking at the world around him and from the testimony of the Bible itself. And yet we come to chapter 4, and Paul begins to ask a very critical question. What is then so special about Abraham? If all mankind merits death and all mankind are sinners, how is it that Abram could be called the friend of God? How is it that Abraham could be reckoned as righteous? What did Abraham do to obtain such a blessing? And is there any hope for us that we might obtain that same blessing as well? You see, in the Jewish mind, Abraham was the role model of role models. Today, uh, for our kids, typically the role models are some type of Hollywood celebrity or athlete. And yet, for ancient Israel, Abraham was the role model par excellence. He was the man who uh, children were raised and called to imitate. If, if they had you know, action figures as a kid, it wouldn't be Spider-Man, it would be Abraham. This is who it is that you were to emulate And yet, for the Jews of Paul's day and for Christ's day, for that matter, they had come to misinterpret how it was that Abraham had been made right with God. The Pharisees, the great religious leaders of the day, had claimed that in order to be made right with God, you had to keep what was known as the works of the law. Keep the Sabbath. Don't murder anybody. No bacon be circumcised. 
The list goes on and on and on, keeping all these dietary regulations as well as the moral law of God to the strictest adherence. If you do that, then maybe the Lord would accept you. Paul says here, well, wait a minute, guys. What does the scripture say? How was it that Abraham was made right with God? This is why Paul takes us here back to the book of Beginnings, Genesis chapter 15, as he cites Genesis 15, verse 6, as he says this, Abraham put his faith in God, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Paul here outlines two different ways in which one theoretically can be saved. The first option here is found in verses 4 and 5. He says, first, you can try to earn your salvation, and God can owe it to you like a paycheck. Paul essentially whispers, good luck with that. As he will expound later in chapter 5, that it is a doomed project from the start, as all mankind has been imputed and reckoned with Adam's first transgression. It's a doomed project from the start. Paul says, if you want to be justified by your own good works, good luck with that. It's a point that he makes over and over again. If we all have already sinned and the payment, the obligation, the debt for sin is death, how could you ever expect to merit eternal life? The Lord expects perfect and perpetual obedience. If you fall in just one facet of it, as James says, if you break just one commandment, you have broken them all. Just once. In thought, in word, in deed, such is the standard that God, the holy God of heaven and earth, has set. You want to try to go that route, good luck with that. But Paul says, I could tell you what life is going to look like for you on the last day. When you stand before the judgment seat of a holy God. But if that is a failed path to salvation, then are we without hope? And now what Paul is saying, in other words, then, is that justification by works is not an option. doesn't matter if you're circumcised. You're circumcised as a boy, fellow Jew, Paul says. doesn't matter if you were raised and you went to, to synagogue school every, every Friday night and Saturday. doesn't matter if you memorized the whole Torah. That is not what merits righteousness before God. And yet Paul says in light of Genesis chapter 15, there is in fact a second option. One that is in fact great news. One that does not bring a burden of despair, but lifts the burden off the shoulders of sinners. An option that highlights the gracious character of God as this path of salvation has been instituted by God Himself and so attested by the law and the prophets that even the law says you are condemned under the law, yet there is a promise of salvation that comes apart from works of the law. What is that path? How is it that one is made right with God? Well, it is by trusting in the free mercy of God and the promises that He gives in the Messiah. As we find the gracious character of God, that it is God who justifies man, not by his own good works, but who trusts in the mercy of God found in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only son who was born of a virgin, born without sin, who lived a sinless life, who suffered a gruesome death on the cross, bearing the curse of the law, though he himself did not deserve it, dying in our place. 
Christ bore our sin that we might bear His righteousness. A righteousness that is received solely by trusting in Christ alone. Though the wrath of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness, yet Paul declares that the righteousness of God is now revealed in His justification of the ungodly to whosoever will put their hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. What we find here is that Paul makes uh, another point. That he is not simply ripping one random verse out of context to make it say what he wants it to say. To try to make you feel a little bit better about yourself. This is how Abraham was justified, but not just Abraham. Now Paul points to David who attests to the same path of salvation, citing Psalm 32 where David extols the Lord for His mercy, saying, blessed. In other words, happy is the man to whom the Lord does not count sin against him. Notice two different Old Testament passages. One regarding the life of Abraham, the other regarding the life of David. And for both, sin is not reckoned to them, rather righteousness is reckoned to them. And in both places, the authors use the word count reckon, impute, depending upon what translation of the Bible you are using. Notice that word that's used in both of these Old Testament citations. It was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Blessed is the one to whom the Lord does not count sin. What does this word mean? It's an accounting term. Every year on my birthday, I'm 40 years old. Every year still on my birthday, my parents call to wish me a happy birthday. And then what did they tell me? Check your bank account. There's a gift for you. I love it. Even though I'm 40 years old, I still get birthday money from my folks. It's the best. I tell you what, though, I didn't get the money because I earned it. Didn't get it from mowing the lawn. Actually, I wasn't allowed to mow the lawn as a kid. I broke three crankshafts, kept running over roots. I caused caused more problems for my parents than ever. My dad at one point eventually told me that he thought it was a genius work, a plan to get out of doing work because I was just so terrible at it. He said, just stop doing it. Parents didn't give me birthday money because I deserved it. That'd be a paycheck. Hey, every two weeks, I get a little special, it's a little special gift in, in my bank account as well. It's a paycheck from, from the church here. I love it. That's something that I've earned. But on my birthday every year, my parents impute, they credit to my account money because they love me. It's not something that's earned. This is the analogy that Paul has been drawing here. You have two options. You can either receive salvation as a wage, as a debt to try to make the Lord owe you, chuckle, chuckle, as if the Lord owes any man. The wages of sin is death. You want the Lord to give you your just dues. He will give it to you. The alternative is the Lord can credit to your account not your own sin but the righteousness of His Son. He has taken my filthy rags and has clothed me with the righteousness of Christ. Something that Isaiah attests to in his own prophecies. That's why we call salvation a gift and not a paycheck. Something the Lord delights to give and give freely. The Lord is offended if we try to somehow earn that salvation. That's not what this is about. This is not about your worthiness. This is about God's worthiness. 
But this is the God who is just and the justifier of the one who puts his faith in Christ Jesus. This is why we say, it's why the Puritans would say that the forgiveness of sins is the Christian's chief happiness. Here, God not only covers our sins, he not only removes our wickedness. You look back on your whole life in light of the moral law of God and you recognize all the ways in which we fail, be it in the things that we do or in the things that we think, the things that we long for. All those things are sin. And yet the Lord does not reckon those sins against us if we have put our hope and trust in Christ. Christ died to bear our sins to bear what our sins deserve, which is death, so that we might bear what Christ deserves, eternal life. It's the great exchange, my sin for his righteousness. And so Paul is very clear for those who try to think that Abraham was justified because he was a mixture of faith and good works. Paul says, no, no, no. It is faith apart from works. Now Paul begins to dig and drive the point home even further. Paul begins to ask, okay, so how was it, or when was it that Abraham was justified? Was, Paul, was Abraham justified before he was circumcised or after? If, if Abraham was, circumcised, was justified after he was circumcised, then perhaps you could make the point that you're only justified by partaking in that sign of the covenant, by keeping the works of the law. But Paul makes it very clear. Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness, and Abraham is not circumcised until over 13 years later. So when, God, when did God credit Abraham? When did God reckon Abraham as being righteous? It was not after Abraham was circumcised, but before In other words, Abraham was not justified by keeping the law. Abraham was not justified by his good works. Abraham was justified for one reason and one reason alone, because he believed God, which is exactly what Genesis 15, 6 said. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's interesting to note then that the Jews of the Old Testament were saved in the exact same way that Christians are today, by trusting in the promises of God. They were given to the Jews under the Old Covenant in signs and types and shadows, where the Lord promised that he would send a Messiah who would deliver them from their sin and misery. Genesis chapter 3, the Lord promises Eve that the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head underfoot. Now to Abraham, he promises a single offspring. Abraham himself, a descendant of Eve. An offspring who will possess the gates of his enemies. Who will crush his enemies underfoot. Through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. The kings would come from him. A promise that's extended to David, that from your offspring will arise a king who will sit on the throne of Israel. A promise given to Isaiah that this seed of David will be the great servant of the Lord who bears the sins of many, Isaiah chapter 53, and is counted among the transgressors, who looks like the great lamb that is sacrificed on the Day of Atonement, but one who bears the sins of the people once and for all. 
The promises of God find their yes and amen, as Paul says to the church of Corinth, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. The Old Testament church was given these promises and types and shadows, and now it's fulfilled in Christ. And so now under the new covenant, we are called to put our hope in the fulfillment that has come. This is the gospel, that man is justified by faith in faith alone. There is no other path of salvation. Any other path leads to destruction. That's the gospel. And yet at the same time, we find that even though Abraham is justified by faith alone, and we should say he's justified by faith alone, full stop, we also must recognize that the Lord instituted a particular sign for the church of the old covenant to keep as an ordinance in perpetuity until the Messiah would come. So we have to ask ourselves, what was the purpose of circumcision? We have to hold this truth as we move forward. Circumcision did not save. It's the point that Paul makes very clear, exegeting from Scripture. It is faith and faith alone for the saints of old that was required for man to be made right with God. Yet the Lord still instituted this practice for the Old Testament church. Why did the Lord do it? Well, verse 11, we see here, Romans 4, Paul tells us that circumcision was a sign and a seal. You know, a couple weeks ago, I was driving through the Utah desert on my way to Colorado. It was beautiful driving through the high desert. It's about as hot as it is right now driving through the desert. No, uh, no phone signal. Nobody could get a hold of me. It was beautiful until, of course, my transmission light popped up on my dashboard. Now, I think uh, nobody here is foolish enough to confuse the transmission light for the transmission itself. If you think that the transmission light is your transmission, maybe we need to talk about car, uh, uh, basic car mechanics. I have somebody else talk to you. I can barely, uh, you know, I'm happy enough to fill up a tank with gas. But there is an intimate connection between the check engine light or the transmission light and what's going on in the engine, isn't it? So if the light pops on, it lets you know the status of where your transmission actually is. That's what Paul is saying, what circumcision was. It, it's a sign. It signified. It signified something. Shouldn't be confused with the thing itself, but it does signify something that's very precious. We don't have time to look at every passage this morning, but if you did a cursory look at the Old Testament, you would find that circumcision signified at the very least these things. The removal of sin and reproach the cutting off of evil deeds, the separation from the world, and an entrustment to the Lord. Like an embosser, circumcision marked that person out as property of the Lord God Almighty. In fact, Paul says, Philippians 3.3, that circumcision was intended to teach this very thing, that we were to put no confidence in the flesh. It's kind of interesting because the Jews of Paul's day had taken it to mean the exact opposite. That circumcision is the very thing that we are to boast in. Paul says, no, what does it signify? It signifies that you're to put your good works away from you. They're dead works. It signifies that you're not supposed to put your trust in good words, works. Circumcision, in other words, is a sign that signifies that man is in fact justified by faith alone. 
It signifies that this person now has been separated, cut off from the world, cut off from sin, cut off from Satan, and has now been made holy unto the Lord. He's now a member of the visible community of the people of God. Does that mean that the baby, as soon as he is circumcised, immediately uh, and automatically became a true believer? No. Again, cursory read throughout the Old Testament, you'll see that a number of Israelites who were circumcised, who apostatized from the faith. And yet the sign of circumcision signified that they are part of this visible community and they are given and extended these great benefits and, and told to appropriate these benefits for their own. That's why Moses would preach over and over again, at least three times, I believe, in Deuteronomy. Don't circumcise merely the foreskin, but circumcise what? Your heart as well. Circumcision was an outward sign that signified what was to become an inward reality. It was a word picture. A very painful word picture designed to teach every generation what it means to walk by faith. Every person... Every child circumcised under the Old Covenant had the great privilege of participating in the benefits of the Covenant and had that great, not only the great privilege, but the great responsibility to appropriate those benefits for himself. Like an embosser, circumcision served as a seal, an imprint that marked him out from the world as property of the living God. And so now we must ask ourselves, who is it that received the sign of circumcision? Was it just Abraham? So we had Genesis 17 read. Did the Lord tell Abraham, wait until your son is old enough for him to profess faith and then circumcise him? Like a credo circumcisionists? No. Abraham believed the Lord and he was credited to him as righteousness and then he was circumcised, but then the Lord tells Abraham, circumcise your son, eight days of old, to know that he belongs to me as well. The Lord delights to save households that you are to raise your son in the faith, that he is to participate in all the benefits of the covenant, and so one day possess those benefits that are his by inheritance through faith and faith alone. Circumcision signified all the benefits that Abraham had in the covenant, but then it also circumcised that his children were to be the beneficiaries of that as well and laid hold of those great promises by faith. Yet fast-forwarding to the New Testament, we find that Paul draws a very strict parallel, a very tight parallel, between circumcision under the Old Covenant and baptism under the New. Paul writes, of course, in Colossians chapter 2, that circumcision was a sign, it's a symbol, to show the the bloody work that Christ accomplished on the cross as He Himself was cut off from the world. And that circumcision of Christ, as Paul calls it, was the means by which our sin was removed from us. Listen to what Paul writes to the church of Colossae. Notice the parallel. In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, Paul's not talking about a physical circumcision here. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in 
baptism. Just as circumcision points to the bloody work of Christ on the cross, now that that work is complete, we are given an unbloodied sign that signifies the same thing, the sign of baptism. What is it that circumcision signifies under the Old Covenant? The removal of sin, a separation from the world, an engrafting or an engagement unto the Lord. What does baptism signify? The washing away of sins, our death to sin, and our engagement to Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 speaks of our having been sealed with the Spirit as, as an engagement ring. It uses the same language, the same parallel. It's all over the place. Again, if the church of the Old Testament is saved in the same way as the New Testament, faith and faith alone, we find that the means of salvation remains the same, but the symbol, what is signif- uh, the, 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 the sign changes but it still signifies the same thing. Circumcision under the old covenant, but now a much better sign. That of baptism. Signifies death and resurrection in our union with Christ by faith. Same covenant. Our sins are pardoned by trusting in Christ and Christ alone. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 3. Baptism saves. But let me clarify that that we don't dis, uh, mess up the difference between the, the sign and the thing signify. Let's not uh, uh, confuse the transmission light with the transmission itself. Peter says, says baptism saves, but I'm not talking about the, the removal of filth from the skin by water. I'm talking about the answer of a clean conscience towards God. What is it that baptism signifies? The fact that our sins have been washed away. In other words, what we find is just as it is with the new covenant, so with the old, neither circumcision nor baptism is a magic rite. It's not a magic rabbit foot. You have your kid baptized, and all right, they've got you know, this kind of get-out-of-hell-free card. No, it's a sign and a seal. It's an ordinance that the Lord has given to mark out who is a member of His body, but now we are claimed uh, and called, as, as Luther says, to remember our baptism. Or as our larger catechism says, to improve your baptism. Not that you have you know, more high-quality H2O for, for a second baptism service. That you live in light of your baptism. You lay hold of the very thing that baptism signifies by faith. I think there are five uh, brief significant things on how this plays out for our life in the church today. That we might understand these symbols that God has given to His church. Five things. The first is one that I've, I've tried to drive home at least once every three minutes. There is only one way by which man is justified. And that is by faith alone. Full stop. There's nothing else that can save. Circumcision cannot save you. Being baptized cannot save you. It is faith and faith alone. Second significant future in light of Romans 4. Circumcision provides the conceptual backdrop, the, 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 the conceptual matrix, the, the lens through which we understand the significance of baptism. I think this might be the, mo- the hardest uh, part for many of us uh, to grasp, many of us who, who grew up with uh, what is not a bad view of baptism, but perhaps a more truncated view of baptism. What we find is that once we recognize that circumcision provides 
uh, the, the grid through which we're to understand the significance of baptism, it really removes the horse blinders off of our eyes and opens us up to recognize how significant this act is, how significant this, we might better say, this sign is, and who it's for. The baptism is a sign and a seal of God's gracious covenant with His people. Third significant feature, if circumcision provides the conceptual matrix, the, the, the lens through which we are to understand baptism, then, just as old covenant believers circumcised their sons, so now under the new covenant, the children of believers are baptized. Such is the promise that Peter gave at Pentecost, citing Genesis chapter 17, that this promise is for both you and your children. The Lord says to Abraham, this is the covenant that you shall keep. You shall be circumcised, but also your children. And so now under the new covenant, the sign changes, but the significance remains the same, and so too does the practice. Fourth significant feature is a reminder that baptism is not a magic rite. This is not a lucky rabbit's foot. It is a sign of the covenant. Attending with this sign comes privileges and obligations both to parents and to children as well as to the rest of the congregation. As it is our duty to pass on the faith once for all handed to the saints to a brand new generation, Jane included. I'm going to consider all the competing voices and philosophies that inundate us in the media today as it has become an actual trope. Who is to be trusted? What news source is to be believed? Who is the source of true news as opposed to fake news? What a privilege it is to from birth be given the truth. Week in and week out to sit under the ministry of the Word. Week in and week out. Day in and day out with a family uh, that, that reads the Bible together. That prays together. That sings God's Word together. To have that teach you to discern between uh, what is true and those vain philosophies is a great privilege. I think uh, many of us, uh, many who, um, who perhaps were not raised in the faith, are jealous of, wishing, oh, I really wish I was raised in the faith. It would, have, it would have made life so much easier if I had 18 years of scripture memorization under my belt before I went off to college. Think of the great privilege that this affords one born into the covenant. To be raised from birth and be instructed in the truth and the knowledge that the holy God, the maker of heaven and earth, is gracious and he has promised salvation to all who trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a great privilege indeed and one of the benefits of the covenant so that the person raised in it can be taught to appropriate this truth for himself or for herself. To make that baptism theirs. And so it leads us to our, our fifth and final significant point. I think this is an exhortation and a reminder to us all that our baptism is significant. I've not even been able to, 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 to touch the surface of what our baptism signifies. You look at 1 Corinthians 10 where it speaks of Christ being our Red Sea. 
giving us a picture of our deliverance from sin's dominion through the work of Christ and our baptism into Christ. A reminder that the world does not own us, that the devil does not own us. Baptism is a reminder that you belong to Christ and to nobody else. You don't even belong to yourself. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not even my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The great significance then is that when Satan tempts you to despair, when he reminds you of your present sins or past failures, my exhortation to you is to remember your baptism and all that it signifies. To lay hold of Christ by faith, that though you may have once been sexually immoral, homosexual, a thief, greedy, abusive, an alcoholic, that those past identities no longer define you. As Paul writes to the church of Corinth, because you have been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for baptism and what it signifies. Your claim over our lives that we belong to you and not to this world. We ask that you would use your word to seal upon our hearts this great work of redemption, that we might lay hold of the promises of God found in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so walk as Abraham did in the footsteps of faith, seeking to trust you and you alone. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.